Hello and welcome to the Life is Story podcast. I'm Josh Olds, and today on the podcast I have uh, Nick Ripkin. Uh, Nick is a lifelong missionary uh, in countries across the globe. He's the author of the books The Insanity of God, The Insanity of Obedience, and his latest is a devotional that's entitled The Insanity of Sacrifice. So Nick, welcome to the program. Thank you so much, Josh. I want to start with your story. I, I think most of my listeners may have heard your name. They might have an idea of who you are. Uh, but let's just begin with who you are and how you spent your life. Uh, who is Nick Ripkin? Well, I like to say that both my wife and I are the pastor's kid, and I'm a pagan's kid. <laughs> and that uh, really did prepare us for overseas work because she, she can't remember not knowing Jesus. And I came to Christ working nights while going to high school in a cheese factory where uh, Jesus spoke to me directly and I gave my life to him in that cheese factory. And two weeks later, I found myself transferring to a, a little Baptist college in Kentucky, reading the Bible for the very first time. And uh, I got to the end of Matthew and read where uh, Jesus said, go into all the world. And I said, awesome. And I read that for the command that it was. But, you know, growing up in a non-believing family, I didn't know uh, any of the mechanisms until I met Ruth a, a, a year later and met a missionary for the first time my sophomore year in college and actually found out that I could go anywhere in the world that God would send me. And back in those days, you had to go to college and then to seminary and and. uh Ruth and I worked five years because of some very big needs in my family's life. Uh, my mom uh, left my dad the night that Ruth and I got married, just to give you a little bit of a feel for my family. And so we stayed an extra five years, uh, really investing in my younger brother, brothers and, and sister. And then in 1984, on January 1st, we went to Malawi in East Africa, and that started a 36-year journey. Mm. Wow. How did you know when it was time to go? Well, I wanted to go a lot earlier, like I said, but uh, my mom and dad had sort of two crops of kids. They had four of us a year apart, and then mom rested three or four years and then had three more a year apart, and they were uh, nine, uh, uh, ten, eleven years of age, and we sort of took them in after our family tragedy. And then just in prayer, and uh, we had a missionary come to our church that uh, we we just loved. We, we, even today, we love that family, and and even his grandchildren are third generation workers, preparing to be workers overseas. And I um, uh, went before the church that I was pastoring. I'm not a very good pastor. I was made for the mission field, and and Ruth did too with our five year old and our three year old, and and. Uh, we began the application process, and, and about nine months later, we got on a plane with a five-and-a-half-year-old and a three-and-a-half-year-old and, and ended up in Malawi in East Africa, one of the most responsive countries in the entire world where people camped out on the side of the road begging us to bring Jesus to their village. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> what, what has it been like? You, you've been in the context, the persecuted church um, throughout you know, Europe and Africa and Asia, I think, as well. 
um, and now having kind of come back to the Western church, what, what do you see as being some of the main contrasts between those different contexts of Christianity? Okay. Well, we uh, spent eight years in South Africa, but they'd had missionaries for almost 300 years. And in rereading the book of Acts, uh, Ruth and I prayed. And within two months, God had led us to go to Kenya, trying to get into Somalia, where there were about 150 believers out of 10 mm-hmm. million people. And we were feeding 50,000 people a day, averaging burying 20 children a day, resettling refugees. We were there six months before I ever met a lady that had not been uh, raped, uh, you know, at least eight times. And by the time we were kicked out of Somalia, only four of those believers were left alive because they had been hunted down and killed and their bodies disposed of. And everything that I had been taught in my uh, bachelor, master's and doctorate in denominational schools taught me. Even though Jesus said, I'm sending you a sheep among wolves, I was trained to be sheep among sheep. Mm-hmm. And so Somalia spiritually, physically, emotionally ate my lunch. And I did not know how to think, reason, pray, you know, do theology, if you will, in a place where the wolves are in the majority. And so in the midst of getting kicked out of Somalia, our 16 year old son died of an asthma attack and we buried him in Kenya. Uh, he, he died eight days after his 16th birthday. We were kicked out of Somalia. Ruth's mother died of a long battle with cancer. So we took a long year of healing. And then after that, God renewed a vision he'd given us uh, almost uh, eight years before. So we wanted to know how to make Jesus known and how to disciple uh, others in places where just by being our friend, it could cost people their lives. And I didn't know anywhere to go, uh, Josh. Uh, I'd, I'd been almost everywhere you could go in the Western world begging for help. And so it seemed natural to us to go to believers in persecution who would teach us uh, how to be sheep among wolves and not only survive, but thrive. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting with one brother in Bulgaria, and I'd never seen things in such stark comparison in my life when he ended three days I sat under his teaching and sit at his feet as Timothy would to Paul. And at the end of those three days, he said to me, Nick, don't you ever give up in in, in freedom what we never give up in persecution. That is our witness to the life, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I found where in persecution where faith could cost you their lives, that they were bold witnesses because they knew they know the quickest way to end their persecution is to love their persecutors and win them to Christ. And now after 36 years, we turn back to the Western church, particularly America, where about 95% of church members by their own testimony have never shared Christ with one person. I don't understand it. I, I can't accept it, but I do love the bride of Christ, and I want to help her stand up and run. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's such a need. I feel like the the church in the United States has it so incredibly easy, and it allows for this sort of shallow faith where it's, it's just sort of a cultural background sort of issue. And to the churches in this persecuted context, you know, to follow Jesus means everything. 
It means to, to give up uh, on their traditions and their, their background and to be cast out of the community. It, it has to mean a lot more. So you, you, get, you really get a more vibrant faith from that because that faith seems more valuable because it is more valuable because it has to mean more. Well, by the end of 48 and 49 in China, um, everyone in, in the house churches in China knew that the communists were not going to be uh, content until everybody was killed and, and martyred. And so they said, well, it's going to cost our lives, so we might as well let it count for something. And they shared Christ just robustly. And by the time in 1983... We started getting information out and started going in a little bit. We wondered, would we find any church, any believers in China, and those 400,000 under the most severe persecution had grown to 10 million. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And the question, you know, the question we want to ask the church in America is not, there's two questions we're asking in, in, in the midst of a lot of questions, but two really big ones is, is uh Again, like the guy asked me in Bulgaria, why are we giving up in freedom uh, um, uh, what they never give up in persecution? And, and, and that's in, in the context of, of, of saying, uh, when did it become acceptable only to die for one's country and not acceptable to die for one's Christ? And therefore, we should be asking not why those people overseas are being persecuted. The question is, why are we not? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's this is a hard message, I think, for the Western church to accept because we and, and by we, I, I, I'm talking about the American church in general, um, I think has sort of a persecution complex where we like to think we're being persecuted. Exactly. Um, and and that's not to discount some of the, the very minor issues that there might actually be. Um, but, you know, a lot of it is is trumped up or, or made up or a figment of our imaginations. Um, how do we get the Western church out of that mindset and to because it, it really cheapens what the persecuted church goes through when we here in the West claim to be persecuted? Well, again, um, the church is the bride of Christ, and I'm far past uh, criticizing her, condemning her, like you're saying. I, I want her to stand up and and be counted, mm. and, and and stand up and run for the Lord. And and Josh, almost everywhere Ruth and I speak, and we we are gone from our home about eighty percent of the time. Uh, leaders will come up to us and say, Nick. You know persecution is coming uh, to the church in America, and I ask why, though I know so far I've got the same answer. It's because of our uh, conservative stance on homosexuality and abortion. And, and Christians should have strong biblical stances on social issues, uh, but there's, there's a big difference. Uh, Saudi Arabia takes strong uh, stances to the point of death against homosexuality and abortion. Mm -hmm. and I don't know that the church wants to be defined by what defines, you know, Islam. And, and for, for us, we're wanting to help the church just feel the freedom and the joy 
of making Jesus known across the street and across the oceans. And believers in persecution are not suffering because of social issues. Uh, they're suffering because they're proclaiming uh, they're receiving Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they're sharing him. And I get this. They're sharing him with their friends, their family, their neighbors, and most of all with their persecutors. And, and the way that I identify with the persecuted church is when I share my faith with my brothers, my family members, with my neighbors at work, at school. That's how I identify with brothers and sisters in chains. But when I keep my faith to myself and I don't share, then I'm identifying with the persecutors. Mm -hmm. Because that's what they're trying to stop. Satan's two biggest desires is to keep people from having access to Jesus. And if you have access and you find Christ as your Lord and Savior, he wants to make you keep him to yourself, keep Jesus to yourself, and, and be quiet about your faith. When I am quiet about my faith, I'm, I'm performing the task that the persecutors would do to me if they had to. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there is a sense of irony that in a nation where we, we pretty much do have freedom to share the gospel, there is the conscious choice often to, to downplay that in, in contexts where you cannot share Christ freely um, are the very nations where his name is being proclaimed you know, the most. Um, you mentioned a, f- a few minutes ago about the, the underground church in China. And I know that I think currently they're kind of going through their own struggle of the government beginning to realize that the best way of controlling this uh, may be to legitimize it and to sort of bring it under the fold of the government and um, to have state sanctioned churches and to bring some of these churches above ground. Um, And that in many instances, this is actually what's led to, um, to more persecution in the sense that it stops the witness of the church. Right. Um, I I guess, you know, I've seen churches that have, you know, that, that have said, you know, we, we decided to be like the Americans. We held the traditional church service and it was like the Holy Spirit left us. And the moment that we were driven back underground, we regained what it was that we were known for. We regained our sense of the church. Is there a way, because I think, I think persecution forces us to decide if we're really going to follow Jesus. Um, in the West, where following Jesus can be so easy, is, is there a way of creating that without the persecution that comes with it? No, no. Uh, it always, you know, in the Bible, persecution is normal. And and the number one cause of persecution, Josh, uh, in history through the world today is people coming to Christ. And the more that the church prays, for persecution to end, the only way that God can answer that prayer is to stop people from embracing his son, Jesus Christ. And here's what here's what we're doing to ourselves. Every time uh, you witness the overt activities of God, especially when you see somebody's life changed, like Saul to Paul, like the Ethiopian eunuch to become someone just in love with Jesus, what that does for you 
it authenticates your own faith. It, 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 re, uh, it reimagines that what Christ did for me when I watch through my witness him do it in the life of another one, then I can be assured of my own salvation. I can be assured that I am walking with Christ. I can be sure that he loves me and he's written his name, my name down in the Lamb's Book of Life. But when I don't participate in the activities of God, particularly in witness, the, the more and more and more will I doubt my own salvation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I want to I want to shift topics just slightly, and this is probably probably the most personal question for me that I'll that I will ask you, uh, and then we'll move on to a conversation about your book. Um, you spent most of your life in a missionary context, and it wasn't just you and your wife, but it was your children as well. Uh, I have two young children of my own, and I think for me some of the hardest parts of ministry is figuring out how they fit in. Um, you know, I'm, I'm worried sometimes about taking my children into contexts uh, here in the United States. Um, you know, I have done um, refugee um, work um, in our local, our, our local prison was being used as a detention center uh, for refugees. And we went down and I took my children with me. They were you know, two and one uh, to to um, just with me because it was on a spur of the moment thing. And, you know, there's this sense of like fear and danger that I don't mind placing myself in the situation. Uh, but it's more difficult to, to make these considerations when you have children. So for your life and your context, going into this very, you know, this missions field with children, um, how, how did that play out in your life? Well, uh, 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 my wife's father, who was a, a pastor, denominational leader, died about six years ago. And that was the last parent either of us uh, uh, had left alive. And, you know, we've missed all these weddings and all these birthdays. And we weren't here. Our kids weren't here when my mom died. She died four months after we went to the mission field. Uh, they weren't here for uh, uh, a best for Ruth's mother's uh, uh, funeral, and, and and they've missed so much. But at his standing in front of Grandpa's uh, uh, a casket, uh, very emotional for me, I, I put my arms around my grown sons, and I said, boys, I've drug you all over the world. Your mother and I have moved 38 times, and you're involved in about 20 of those. And if I've just done something uh, spiritually or emotionally or physically, uh, to hurt you, I just want your forgiveness. And those boys, Josh, wrapped their arms around me and have lived in some of the toughest places. I've, I've watched as they've had IVs in their arms uh, for 24 hours with quinine, trying to kill the malaria in their system. And those boys hugged me and kissed me and said, Daddy, we've had the greatest life than any child could have. Let me... Let me say something quickly. The second time I went in Somalia, I knew life would never be the same. And I came out of being in there for six weeks. I sat down with my wife and talked for a couple hours. And with her 110% agreement, we sat down with the boys and said to them, boys, there was, you know, our story. There was a time when your mother and I were asked to say yes to Jesus, and we did. 
And there was a time where we were asked if we were not only live for Jesus, but if we would go and with you when you were five and you when you were three, we said yes. And we went. And I said, boys, I don't think that living for Jesus and going for Jesus is enough. Somalia is such a hard, hard, hard place that it may cost some of us our lives. And I think we've got to talk about as a family, are we willing to die for Jesus? And in that process of overtly stating that with our children and our kids saw that their parents were willing to die for their faith, it revolutionized our boys' walk with Jesus. And yet we've come back to a culture where in our churches, 80% of our children drop out of church by their senior year in high school and another 20% drop out the first year in college, and are we actually going to say that for security purposes and because of costliness of the gospel, which Jesus promised, we would rather our kids lose their salvation than risk their physical lives? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's the... I think that's the decision that's, that a lot of people make. They, you know, we try to live this safe life. We try to wall ourselves off, and um, the safe thing actually ends up being way more dangerous. And the, the fear, the fear, we know ourselves that fear is the number one tool of Satan. And as long as we're uh, two believers in persecution, both of them from Muslim background, one young, one old, said to me. There are 366 verses in the Bible about not being afraid and having no fear and, and said that God has given us a verse for every day of the every day of the year and an extra verse when we have a really bad day. What does it mean to walk without fear, to lay in your bed at night in a place with no electricity and and your pipes freeze in some places uh, in the winter and you have not even electricity for a fan in the summer? But to watch your boys grow up and become so relational with the peoples of this world and just naturally live out their faith, uh, I would I would dare say, give me a hundred children who grow up overseas with their as as missionaries themselves with their parents, and give me a hundred kids in a Western church and the hundred overseas, ninety out of a hundred. They will take their faith into their children. And in, and that same hundred, if they were to stay in America, 80% of them will not be in church by the time they go to college. It, there's no trade. There, it just is obvious. If, if I was a father, brother, of daughters, knowing what I know about the Western world and, and about serving cross-culturally, I would beg Jesus to let me take my kids overseas but the truth of the matter, Josh, it may need for, to be another conversation. We have mentored uh, just hundreds of young people and young couples and second career couples. And what we've watched that we never, ever expected is that pagans, non-believers, bless their children to be missionaries overseas in hard places more than church members do. Because pagans will make up, a like my dad before, he didn't come to Christ until our son died. And and my dad would make this unbelievable story how his son 
brought in the U.S. military and 30-some thousand troops to save Malawi, I mean, save Somalia. And he told that to everybody in my home county. And he made up this wonderful story. But church people know that we only go for one reason, and you've already mentioned it. And so the question is, is Jesus worth it? Is he worth my life, the life of my wife, and the life of my children? And nobody is disposable. We throw no lives away. We don't look for suffering. Uh, my, matter of fact, persecution, if you've got somebody afraid of persecution, we need to politely, lovingly, quietly, biblically confront them and, and help them get over their fear. But if you've got somebody that wants to be persecuted, they want to be beaten, they want to go to jail, they want to be tortured and killed, take them to a psychiatrist. <laughs> Persecution is not something you run away from, and it's not something you run toward. It's just reality, and what you do with persecution gives it its value, whether it's negative or whether it's positive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, let's, let's turn to a discussion of your book. Um, all three books that you've written have started with the words the insanity of uh, explain to me why you choose to use that term well you know we wrote the insanity of god and we're working hard for uh, a title and and there were eight of us sitting in the room and and you know you've got sheep among wolves and and you've got all these bible verses uh like just like that and we talked for about four or five hours and we took a break. We're so frustrated. And I come back and I see all of these verses on living for Jesus, dying for Jesus, going for Jesus, sheep among wolves, Matthew 10, where it says, I'm going to have you arrested so that you'll have access to the highest regions of the secular and sacred world. And, and they're going to persecute you. But uh, I'm sending you as a witness to them. I'm going to give you access where you had no access and we took a break and I walked back in the room and saw all these pages off of flip charts uh, 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 taped to the wall of the house we were in, in in Florida. And I just said to the group, you know what? Everything we've been talking about represents the insanity of God. And it was as if the Holy Spirit just fell in the room and everyone at once said, that's that's the essence, not only of this book, but the essence of the kingdom of God. I've often asked myself a question, which is harder, dying on a cross or sending your only son to die on a cross? Mm-hmm. I would rather go to Mogadishu 10,000 times than to send my boys and my wife in there once, and, and I did that. Because the hardest thing, and this is, a, this is what the church, this is, can help the church, the hardest thing is not going overseas to be a missionary, even in Somalia. The hardest thing is to send those you love to lay down their lives in places like Somalia. And if the church deals with what it means to send those they love to be sheep among the wolves, it will either transform the church or the church will stop sending. And she stopped sending. About 2% of our churches send career workers. And the question I think that they're answering is Jesus is not worth it. Hmm. Hmm. How do we, I mean, 
it, it represents such an opportunity for the church to turn around. But it's also, you know, very disheartening to hear that, like, you know, the the, the fields are ripe, Jesus says, for this yes. work. Um, we just need the workers. What what do we what do we need to do to get these workers out in the fields? Uh, I think the hardest task is reaching uh, your own family. And, and, and connection with that, the hardest task is also going to your Judea because Judea for the world represents the next race of people. Mm-hmm. For us, that might be African Americans. For us, that might be us Caucasians. That might be Latinos or it might be, uh, the Muslims that have immigrated to, to America. But your Judea in the, in most of the world, is the ones who steal your goats and your sheep. They steal your cattle and your camels, and they take your daughters and your wives. And so reaching your Judea is the hardest place and the place where it makes the least sense. And what we have watched, if people will cross the street and share the gospel through meals in their homes and through sharing meals in in non-believers' homes, and, and learn how to just tell their story of faith and gather people around meals talking about Jesus. Uh, you can do this anywhere in the world as long as you can learn language and you have the health to take you there. It's it just, you can't preach. I've never preached a sermon, never one time. And, and, and someone just went and got on a plane and went to the mission field or went and just shared Christ with their neighbors. I've never seen that happen, but when I take them and I say, come with me and we'll go talk to your family or come with me and we'll go to the store or or you go with my wife is marvelous in taking women, helping them get over their fear, meeting Muslim women in, say, supermarkets and within 30 minutes being invited to Muslim women's home because that's the way Muslims are. They invite you to their home 30 minutes after you meet them anywhere in the world. That's been our experience. Mm-hmm. And so you, you, you've you got to model it. You can't uh, just preach it. You can't just teach it. I can't show slides or do a workshop. I say, come and see. Uh, uh, tell me who you're burdened for, and I'll go with you and, and, and show you how to have a loving, natural, uh, spiritual conversation or Get on a plane, you and your family, or or bring a partner if you're a single woman, a single guy, and Ruth, you, Ruth and I'll model that for you. Then we'll help you do it. Then we'll send you out and let you let you do it on your own. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got to we've got to get by a pre, get beyond a preaching event and have our leaders take us and do it with us. Mm-hmm. I think one of the ways the Western Church attempts to um sort of bridge this gap is often through short-term missions trips and you know there's been a lot of conversation about do these do more harm than good um and i i think that it definitely depends on your context but uh from your experience especially as a long-term missionary do you do you see any value in a short-term missions um like a typical you know youth group week away or would you recommend something different well, in, in, in open countries, uh, we can take, you know, people can come out and distribute Bibles. They can go and witness however that is. And, 
however level they're comfortable in doing. And but in the hard places, I don't even take college students. It's too dangerous. But but uh, the answer to your question, we used about 150 Somali, we, uh, 150 volunteers from America uh, in Somalia, but mostly nurses, and they were all people with overseas experience, a lot of life experience. And I did use, uh, Ruth and I used a, a number of young nurses, but we put them with older nurses. And uh, the problem is uh, missions get spaddish. And the mm-hmm. fad right now is to go into trafficked women and to go to orphanages. And what, after about 20 years now of doing orphanages, and this is growing more and more every day, the, every secular port, report I've read and everything I've heard for hours on radio programs investigate this. We are teaching the orphans of this world and 70%, 77% by WHO uh, uh, investigation of what's called orphans has at least one living parent. Mm-hmm. But what we're teaching orphans and in institutions is that you can't trust love longer than two weeks at a time. And those are raising up some of the most jaded children in the world. When we go short term, tell them how much we love them. We'll never forget them. And we're always going to come back. And it never happens. And so it just takes a, a lot of leadership to make sure that you're not only addressing uh, this horrible, horrible uh, uh, tens of thousands of orphans, hundreds of thousands of orphans around the world. But what we're trying to do as career workers overseas is to address, address the issue of why there are orphans and why parents give their children up and sometimes why they sell their children. And if it's issues of poverty or issues of, of water and food and clothing and education, we want to help parents to make enough living and to have enough faith themselves that they don't give their kids away Mm -hmm. and then there's always going to be as jesus said the widows and the orphans that we need to uh, take responsibility and bring it even to our homes but we don't want to turn it into a business that generates more orphans because of the money made in adoption Mm -hmm. and uh, and uh, there's a lot of the adoptions that's going on around the world that are some of the most godly things i've ever seen and sacrifice on behalf of loving, loving, uh, not just uh, 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 wives and husbands, but that whole family with children. And this is something the church does really well. All I'm saying is at the same time, we need to address the issue of a lack of faith, of a lack of resources, a lack of water, a lack of jobs, a lack of education that oftentimes makes people give up their children. There's definitely a sense of like the goal here that adoption is never, never the first choice. Adoption always begins with an incredible loss and mitigating that loss and helping to empower birth families and communities to to be able to take care of their own is certainly. In the hard places, we don't take, you know, teenagers, even college students, Mm -hmm. unless they come with their families. Mm -hmm. Now, any any group, when whole families come, the, that's that's wonderful way to volunteer. 
when mom, dad, uh, teenage kids, younger kids come and they can experience that together, be changed together, uh, come back and keep that vow unto God to make a difference in your own home, your own neighborhood. The, the most common place of worship in the world today is in our homes. And if there's anywhere where spiritual leadership needs to be expressed and men need to step up is leading our families in worship in our homes. And we've got to, we've got to be more hesitant to spiritually give our kids away to be spiritually led by someone outside the home. So these volunteers, to answer your question, they have been lifesavers for us. Mm-hmm. But folks on the field need to design tasks and experiences that meet the needs of the one witness to rather than meeting the needs of the witnesser. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so with with this book, it's a 90 day devotional. Uh, devotionals tend to be very encouraging very, I think, lighthearted, sort of, you know, attaboy. Um, and, and you have an entire 90-day devotional on the insanity of sacrifice. Right. Um, how, did, how did you pitch this idea? How did you think that it would be taken? Well, we, uh, my wife, of course, we, we do a devotional together every morning. And the last thing we do before we turn off the lights is we read the Bible and we read a devotional usually and pray together and and then that's uh that's the way we start our day and the way we end our day but uh a lot of the devotionals that we have been exposed to uh it, it, it's about me and 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 my needs and it, it's about uh making jesus palatable and maybe bringing him down to my size and and we just we just want to emphasize for ourselves and, and for those we love, is that you can't experience just uh, resurrection without crucifixion. And, and there's there's no really going to the empty tomb without picking up your cross and following Jesus. And yet we are in a culture that wants resurrection without crucifixion, and that if God loves us, he certainly will not cause us to suffer, and that he'll let us uh, die in our sleep, you know, at an old age, but you mentioned it early on. What if it's different? What if suffering and enduring persecution is actually the sign of the favor of God and his trust in us? Mm-hmm. So the book was written uh, for us to realize that uh, uh, that Jesus calls us to give and he calls us to lay down our lives. He calls us to pick up our cross and, and he calls us to to actually a life of sacrifice. And we go back to where we talked with our boys and said, boys, uh, uh, loving and living is not enough and going is not enough. This may cost us our lives. And as a family, we made a decision again, but it was right in the front of our hearts, in the front of our brains, that if Jesus called us to die, we would do so with joy. Mm-hmm. Now, that was that was a beginning of being able to go to believers in in persecution and realize when they come to faith, they can't get out. Their kids 
are kicked out of school and and their kids are embarrassed because their parents are the only Christian uh, in that community. And and just the normal uh, uh, persecution, I asked them, I would say to them, Josh, where did you learn to live like this? Where did you learn to die like this? And they would say, I learned it from my great grandparents and I learned it from my grandparents. and I learned it from my parents. And now I'm preparing my children. See, the focus is not on persecution. The focus is on loving Jesus and sharing your faith. And if persecution comes because of what evil is, uh, blessed uh, be the name of the Lord. If, if we get through life without having to really have any spiritual calluses, and that's God's will, then blessed be the name of the Lord. If like John the Baptist, uh, for your faith and telling Herod, you will not take your brother's wife and have uh, a knowledge of her and and. He had prepared the way for Christ, and Jesus let him uh, uh, be killed by Herod so that he could have his reward earlier. Mm-hmm. Yet that's not the way we think. Yeah, yeah. Where do, where do you see the church a generation from now? Where where would you think that we are headed? No, not a good place, I'm afraid. I um. Statistically, every denomination's declining by three to five percent. And if indeed what we've been told that 80 percent of our kids are dropping out by after they get a car and and by the time they're 18, uh, the persecutors oftentimes would leave parents alone and do everything they can to separate children in school by uh, to where they would hate their parents. Josh, they would make young children, teenage children, stand in the middle of a gym floor while the whole school ridiculed them. They did that to your kids. And they would make the kids of of evangelists and pastors and leaders stay after school and stand at attention in the principal's office while the principal, the teachers, and the administrators made fun of you because you're the kid of a pastor and you can imagine what that does to a 9, 10, 11-year-old girl. And they come home and they're so angry and often filled with almost hateful attitudes to their parents. Why do we have to be this way? Why do we have to be the only one? Do you know what you're doing to my life? But around about 13 years of age, they'll compare the love and the life of their parents to the hatred and the, and the all this stuff in, in the world around them and and they'll they'll decide to be followers of Jesus because they want to be like uh, their moms and dads and their grandparents and their great grandparents, and and that's what I want from my children. Mm-hmm. I want my children uh, to be able to testify when I'm alive and when I'm dead that that my dad and my mom were obedient and lo- they loved Jesus and were obedient to Him and they taught me to be the same. I think. Uh, as goes the family in worship in their home, thus goes the church. Mm-hmm. And as the families cross the street with witness, bringing people into the body of Christ, thus grows the church. But to neglect, to neglect those two things and our future, well, the, the center for me, the center of Christian growth today is in communist China. 
Mm. And if you looked at dollars spent, the only place where Muslims are not coming to Jesus in large, significant numbers are the places we don't go. And yet, to see a great harvest in communist China, to see a great harvest among Hindus, to see a great harvest in the lives of Muslims when they actually have access to Jesus, and see my own country where churches abound, uh, declining in faith uh, is a hard... That's not something that makes any of us happy. It's heartbreaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what we're trying to call people back to in the insanity of sacrifice, particularly, is the fact that laying down your lives is the only way you're going to keep your life. And only if that seed falls in the ground and dies, will it bear much fruit. And, and the insanity of sacrifice is just repeating uh, some of the major themes of Jesus in the Bible. So for you yourself, um, you've had this, this you know, long experience in the missions field, and now you're sort of beginning to, uh, you know, you're parlaying that into the next generation. So what, what's, what's next for Nick and Ruth Ripken for the rest of, of their lives? I mean, I assume you're not just going to retire uh, peacefully and live out the rest of your days. What, you know, what, are, what are your plans for the remainder of your time on this earth? Well, we have retired from our mission board though we're still representing them because we love what they've poured in us 36 years. Uh, in the last, uh, since we moved into our first and forever home, we've moved 38 times and we finally built our only home, our first home and hopefully our only home. We've been in this home maybe maybe 40% of the time. And with Ruth, with Ruth's help, uh, we have speaking, teaching, uh, investing in people engagements, uh, overseas and all over America and Canada, uh, for sure, uh, probably through the first half of 2021. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I have health issues. A lot of them have come through um, uh, the long months of malaria. Some bad stuff is, you know, it's just a byproduct of that. And, and I played American football weighing 110 pounds, and I'm still paying for that. And so, but as long as health uh, holds up, uh, we'll we'll keep going and and telling and sharing and loving and and in this house that we've built, uh, we've got a walkout basement that we fully furnished, so that our uh, TCKs, our missionary kids, will have a place to come and hang out and be. We've got some coming in next week for spring break, and and families who are scattered all over the world that. They need to come home for emergency counseling or a surgery or for a death of a loved one or, or you know, a medical procedure. Uh, they can come and stay uh, in these furnished apartment at the uh, walkout basement and, and just walk in there and drop their suitcases. And they can be there for two or three months. And so we're hoping not only to keep going out, but as we did in our homes all over the world, to make a safe place for workers to come in and their children and do anything and everything we can to invest in them, love on them, uh, cry with them when they're crying and laugh when they're laughing and try our best to send them out better than they came when they came to us. 
Well, Nick, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to be on the podcast today. Uh, and again, uh, for listeners, the book is The Insanity of Sacrifice. It's a 90-day devotional. Uh, it's it's a book that you, usually when I review books, because I have so many on my on my pile, um, you know, it, it's a 90-day devotional, but I'm not going to take 90 days to read through it. The publisher kind of wants a quicker turnaround time than that. And so this was a book that I read through over the course of an evening and then immediately went back and have returned to um you know every day every day since because it demands that you read through it that day by day step by step uh to really to really let it soak in and sink in so thank you nick for your ministry thank you for this book um thank you for your time i really appreciate everything that you've done for the kingdom well josh you've just made my day brother and uh, if there's ever anything i can do for you we can do for you you just call. Thank God for what you're doing. 